thanks to Grammarly for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Grammarly is a communication tool that helps people improve their writing to be mistake-free, clear, and effective. Start writing confidently by going to Grammarly.com fool to get 20% off a Grammarly premium account today. Also, thanks to Clear for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Clear uses your eyes and fingertips instead of traditional ID documents to get you through security faster at airports and stadiums. Get your first two months of Clear for free by going to clearme.com slash fool2019 and use the promo code fool2019. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hi. So this week, we are welcoming Phil Buchanan into the studio. He heads up the Center for Effective Philanthropy and is the author of Giving Done Right. He's going to talk to us about how to make your giving dollars go farther. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, bro, what's up? Well, Allison, I've got three things, and then maybe one fun facts. They're kind of two facts. But anyways, it's fun nonetheless. Let's start with number one. Party like it's 1987. Again! Well, it's been quite a year for the stock market. So, going through the year, the performance in January was the best January since 1987. Then came February, as it always does after January. And those are the best first two months of the year since 1991. Then came March. Put those three together, you get the first quarter. That was we had the best first quarter since 1998. Mm. Well, now we're done with April, a month that saw the S and P 500 and the Nasdaq hit all-time highs. So look at those first four months, and we have the best performance since we're back to 1987. In fact, Ryan Detrick of LPL told CNBC that there have only been four years since World War II that had better performances in those first four months. They were 1967, 75, 83. And 87. And for three of those um, years, the performance of the subsequent six months was about flat. The one outlier was 1987. The market was down 13%, thanks mostly to what became known as Black Monday, mm-hmm. that day in October when the Dow dropped 22.6%. But still, the market was up for that year. So let's look, put some other numbers on what we have seen so far in 2019. The S&P 500 is up 18% so far this year. The NASDAQ is up 22%. This is all, by the way, as of the end of April. Um, so the NASDAQ being up more shows that uh, bigger, techier, growthier stocks are still doing very well, outperforming the market. Small caps are doing well, but not quite as well, up 16%. International stocks up 14%. And boring old bonds up 3%. Not great compared to stocks, but still pretty good still. For, for four months' worth of work. So, all in all, 2019 has been a great year for to be an investor so far. See, there we go. <laughs> there he is. There's my awfulizer. Thank you. Well, let's get to some more awfulizing then, shall yeah. we? Number two, the secret to getting ahead, be born at the right time. Mm. So, a lot of financial success does come down to luck or, in some cases, bad luck. So, for example, research has established for a while now that entering the workforce as a college grad during a time of recession can have lasting effects, effects that last up to 10 to 15 years. But do those effects last longer? And what if you didn't graduate from college? Well, a couple of researchers looked at these questions. Hannes Schwant of Stanford, I'm not sure I'm going to get these names right, but I'm going to get close. Oh, no, I think, yeah, I think oh, that you was nailed it. it. And Till von Wachter of the University of California. So the results are pretty depressing, and I'm just going to quote <laughs> quote from the, their research specifically. So they found that quote, 
Negative impacts on socioeconomic outcomes persist in the long run. In midlife, recession graduates earned less while working more, and they were less likely to be married and more likely to be childless. And then on top of it, and again, this is a quote from the research, recession graduates had higher death rates when they reached middle age. These mortality increases stemmed mainly from diseases linked to unhealthy behaviors, such as smoking, drinking, and eating poorly. In particular, we discovered a significantly higher risk of death from drug overdoses and other so-called deaths of despair <laughs> among those who left school during a downturn. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty depressing. Now, obviously, this doesn't apply to everybody. And if you enter the workforce during a recession, it doesn't mean you're doomed. So, for example, my wife and I graduated from college at the end of the 90-91 recession, we turned out all right, although my wife did have to start training as a job as a UPS driver because it was the only job that was available to her. Wow, you could not pay me enough to drive a big truck around DC. <laughs> she eventually didn't end up didn't, not finishing it because she got another job. Regardless, so you're not doomed. But it does explain a couple of things. So first of all, I think it partially explains why many millennials, particularly the older millennials, feel a lot of angst because they came of age either during or after the Great Recession and had more college debt than any previous generation. Um, But another thing is it validates something we've talked about before on the show, and that there is a connection between health and wealth, and it's a two-way street, Mm. where if you're experiencing some sort of financial distress, it can lead to basically bad behaviors. So just something to keep in mind. Number three, purple pain. This past April 21st marked the three anniversary of the death of... Prince Rogers Nelson, better known as just Prince. Just Prince. Although apparently when he was young, he didn't like that name. Do you know what he went by when he was a kid? Mm-mm. Skipper. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have known? And Prince, Prince was his name. His, his father's stage name was Prince Rogers. And he passed it along to his son. Huh. Anyway, as reported by USA Today, despite three years transpiring since, his, since Prince's expiring, his estate is still not settled. Wow. Why not? A few reasons. Well, first of all, he didn't have a will or an estate plan. And that will always cause delays, confusion, and problems, but especially when, as in Prince's case, number one, you don't have any kids, and number two, you're very, very rich. So after he died, up to 700 people came out of the woodwork claiming to either be um, forgotten descendants, like half-siblings, or one guy claimed that he was Prince's long-lost son. Wow. Yes. Eventually, it was whittled down to his six siblings. Now, the estate is estimated to be worth $200 million and $300 million, but we don't know for sure yet because it hasn't been officially valued yet, three years later, by the administrators. But we do know that it's a lot less than it was three years ago because the heirs claim that the administrators of the state have already spent $45 million on legal fees and other expenses. And it's going to go down even more because the estate still hasn't played paid the federal state taxes and the Minnesota, Minnesota state state taxes, which is going to cost the heirs tens of millions wow. of dollars. Um, and the final complication here is that obviously the state is an ongoing business, right? Because they still have to manage his recordings as well as Paisley Park, which is now a museum. So it can't be, it's, like a not, it's not like a normal estate where everyone gets a little bit of something and goes their separate ways. It's an ongoing business. So the heirs have been kind of fighting it out. But the lesson, of course, here is had he an estate plan, it would have saved his heirs a lot of time, a lot of money. If you don't have an estate plan, go ahead and get one. Final fun fact, are you in the middle class? 
Yes. See, that's what most Americans think they're in the middle class. Yeah. In fact, 70% of people think they're in the middle class. <laughs> but a recent article from Fast Company... Which, depending on how big a middle it is, well, so they could be it. right. It could be... Well, some seventy percent middle how, and fifteen percent upper and low. I mean, the math works out. It works out. It works out. Okay. Well, I'll give you at least according to this Fast Company article some definitions of the middle class. Okay. So, according to the Pew Research Center, which came out with a report towards the end of two thousand eighteen, a middle income family with three people in the household earns between forty five thousand two hundred dollars and one hundred thirty five thousand six hundred dollars. Okay. The Brookings Institute offered a broader range $37,000 to $147,000. But a lot of it depends on the size of your household and where you live. So to see how you stack up to other households in the U.S. as well as other households in your state or even in your general area like your county, you can visit the income calculator at pewresearch.org. And that, Allison, is what's up. Thanks to Grammarly for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Grammarly is a communication tool that helps people improve their writing to be mistake-free, clear, and effective. Everyone, even the best students and the top professionals, can use Grammarly to do your best work and accomplish even more of your goals. Grammarly Premium looks out for spelling, grammar, plus advanced punctuation, structure, style within context, vocabulary suggestions, conciseness, and readability for different occasions, such as if you're just doing an academic essay or maybe a very in-depth blog post, all that kind of stuff. What I personally love about Grammarly is that it's always there, eavesdropping on my writing, whether I'm in MailChimp or Gmail. It's listening and offering advice on how to not write bad. If only it could help me talk gooder. Go to Grammarly.com fool to get 20% off your Grammarly premium account today. Thanks to Clear for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Clear uses your eyes and fingertips instead of traditional ID documents to get you through security faster at airports and stadiums. Have you ever seen them like when you're trying to get on the plane at Reagan and you're like, what is, what's up with those clear people over there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we know. Basically, that's what they do. I, I didn't know this, that you use your eyes and fingertips to like get on the plane. That's pretty cool. It's like the future is here. Yes, and well, much faster, I'm sure. Clear gets you through security with the tap of your fingers so you can get to your gate faster, like you just said, and reduce pre-flight stress. It replaces the need for physical ID cards using your eyes and fingertips to get you through security. If you're traveling with your family, you can add up to three adult family members at a discounted rate. Also, kids under 18 are free. Right now, listeners of this show can get their first two months of Clear for free by going to clearme.com slash fool2019 and using the promo code fool2019. That's C-L-E-A-R-M-E dot com slash fool2019 with promo code fool2019 for your free two months of Clear. When you think of the economy, you likely think about businesses. But our economy is about more than making money. In fact, the nonprofit sector accounts for almost 10% of the U.S. GDP, and it gets a good deal of that funding just from regular people donating money. In fact, according to Patrick Rooney of Indiana University, more Americans give to charity than vote in presidential elections. Oh. Now, if you're one of these altruistic souls, you may have wondered, how should I evaluate the nonprofits I'm considering, and how can I measure the impact they're having? Here to provide some thoughts on those questions is Phil Buchanan, the founding chief executive of the Center for Effective Philanthropy and the author of a new book, 
Giving Done Right. Phil, welcome to Motley Fool Answers. Uh, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Great. So why don't we start with you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up in the world of philanthropy. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure exactly. Um, it, it's been pointed out to me that I have the right name for it. Uh, <laughs> I was um, raised by a dad who was totally focused on like social activism, and uh, so I was always interested in like, well, what kind of you know difference do you make in the world? And then. Uh, I went off and ended up in business school, which probably really would have made him cringe, and then at a strategy consulting firm working with big companies, and that would have made him cringe even more. He was no longer alive, so uh, I didn't get uh, judged by him. Uh, but I you know, started to think, I want to I try to do something that combines my background in um, you know, focus on questions like performance assessment, with areas in which it's much harder to assess performance, uh, but maybe even more important. Uh, so, began working with uh, the Center for Effective Philanthropy and large institutional foundations that have a lot of resources uh, and the opportunity to do a lot of good. And sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. And then over the years, we've broadened our focus to include individual donors as well. Great. So, as you point out in the book, the nonprofit sector has actually made a lot of contributions. To society, and in a lot of ways that people don't really appreciate. And in some ways, it affects our daily lives. So, why don't you give us some examples of some ways that maybe people don't appreciate the ways that our lives have been improved by nonprofits? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, there are there are uh, so many. Uh, the fact that you don't worry about your kid getting yellow fever uh, because the Rockefeller Foundation uh, supported the development of vaccines, or uh, really mundane uh, sort of improvements to our daily life that actually save lives, like the white lines on the side of the road, uh, you know, on the on the right hand side that didn't used to be there, and people would veer off uh, at night. And uh, then a, a donor in Connecticut, actually his wife, I think, had the idea. This was in the maybe late 50s, early 60s, if I remember correctly. Uh, what, if, what if they painted a white line uh, and it, it maybe would uh, alert people you know, to the fact that they're drifting? And they tested it out, and it worked. Uh, yeah, that was the Door Foundation. Yeah, that's right. right. So Door was a, a chemical engineer who actually worked with um, Thomas Edison as a teenager. And it, it's kind of interesting because they, her observation was, there's only the one line in the middle. If weather's bad, people either hug that line or exactly. go too far to the right. Exactly. And all these accidents, they funded the painting of white lines and all the studies. Basically, accidents went down considerably, and then they, they're the ones who funded publicizing this. But it was actually it was controversial for years. People didn't do it, and then eventually they accepted it, and now we all have these things. Right. And there's all, all, all kinds of... The, our 911 emergency response system uh, came out of uh, grant funding from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Uh, RWJF, which I should disclose, also funds the organization I lead, um, helped drive down smoking rates in the 90s, uh, often taking on uh, the tobacco companies. Uh, you know, the, the list just goes goes on and on. And in every community, there are often small community-based organizations working to help the most vulnerable people, uh, supported by individual donors, institutional donors, organizations like uh, I write about a place called UTech in the book that works to in Massachusetts in Lowell uh, to recruit the um, uh, sort of most violent uh, young people out of gang life uh, and get their lives turned around. And it's, you know, brutally difficult work. The street workers at UTech uh, show up at funeral homes and 
uh, emergency rooms uh, and in jails because that's where they have the best chance of reaching someone like, no, actually, I want to, I want to do something with my life that's a bit different. They get them employed in one of their social enterprises and help get them life, their life on a different path. Recidivism rate is very low. I tell that story in the book. It's an extraordinary story, but actually, there are organizations like that in every community uh, supported by a wide range of, of donors. So let's say someone listening says, that's, that's all great news. I would love to support some sort of charity. How does someone go about choosing sort of the right charities for them? Yeah, it's, it's, there's no formula. Uh, I think people want a formula, and there isn't one. Uh, you know, it's about um, figuring out what matters to you. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of uh, debate about, about whether all goals are equally worthy. Should you just follow your heart? And uh, I think you should use your heart and your head, right? Uh, what, what, what are you really passionate about? But also think about, well, where, where do you have the opportunity to do to do good. There's a guy named Peter Singer, a um, philosopher at Princeton, who uh, is the father of what's known as effective altruism. And he would argue that it's immoral to give to the uh, museum when your $100 could uh, you know, significantly improve or even save a life a uh, few hundred dollars you know, through malaria prevention in a developing country, for example. And uh, I think it's important to wrestle with those questions. I don't agree with them that it's immoral to give to the museum, uh, and, but but I think think about you know where can uh, you really do good? What's important to you? And uh, that might include giving uh, internationally and also locally, which is a which is a big um, sort of tug for most people. They want to give back in their community. So so figuring out the goal you you care you're passionate about you know helping foster kids have better life outcomes, or you're passionate about the environment and preserving uh, uh, habitats for wildlife or whatever whatever the issue is, uh, that's the first part. And then, of course, you have to figure out which organizations to support. Right. And then that comes down to evaluating the various organizations. And that's kind of tricky. It used to be, and, and even to a certain degree still, one of the first things people would look at is overhead. overhead. How right. much of my donation is going towards you know, the CEO's salary and right. how much is going to the actual beneficiaries? Right. That was very popular for a long time and still is to a certain degree, but you think that's misguided. I basically do, yeah. I mean, I think obviously there are examples at the extremes where you would say like, you know, the, the, the budget being allocated in that way just doesn't make any sense. Uh, but 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 I think often investment in overhead. If we're if what we mean by overhead are things like the rent needed to uh, you know provide the space for the food pantry, uh, or the salaries needed to pay people to do uh, you know to the the people you need to retain attract and retain to do a good job, uh, or technology that might be needed in order to deliver um, you know services or programs more effectively. Uh, these are crucial, you know, investments an organization makes, and and so uh, I think if you know enough about an organization to trust them, then you should trust them to allocate their budget. And the question becomes not how do they allocate their budget, but what are their results relative to their to their overall budget. Uh, and uh, of course, that's a much tougher question to answer. But I don't think that in general overhead, which actually still is widely used by the charity, some of the charity rating uh, websites. Yeah, you know, is a particularly good measure. And in fact, a woman named Caroline Fines in the UK, uh, very smart consultant in philanthropy, did an analysis of um, a set of international uh, organizations uh, working on things like like malaria uh, prevention, and she saw uh, a correlation between 
more overhead and better results uh, in terms of their in terms of their work. So it should be about results. Gotcha. So when you talk about results here at the Motley Fool, we're investors, right? So we might think, okay, we're going to go into this with an investing mindset. Yeah. Uh, but that's another situation that you think can get a little dicey because partly because you can't really evaluate a business in the same way you evaluate a philanthropy. Exactly. Right. I I do believe that. Um, Business, uh, business, and nonprofits are different, uh, and that giving is not quite like investing. And and for, for exactly the reason that you that you say, Robert, which is that the, the there isn't a universal metric. I mean, you and I can compare our investments uh, by their returns, even if they're in completely different industries. Um, it's not so easy in philanthropy. Uh, the 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 right metrics are not the ones that are captured in the financial statements. They're the ones that have to do with the pursuit of the, the mission and the goals, and uh, even if we were somehow able to know that uh, you know one nonprofit had contributed significantly or even was solely responsible for improving graduation rates by 10% in a particular city, and another nonprofit had been responsible for reducing CO2 emissions in a particular city, and you know, and aside is like that's a really thing to really hard thing to actually know that one org, you know, what is the contribution of a of one organization when in fact many organizations are usually working on an issue. Uh, but even if you knew those uh, those that data, uh, what's better? Uh, you know, you can't put them into a common unit of measurement. And 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 of course, uh, sometimes your positive outcome will be my negative outcome. And so so. Performance measurement is crucial, but it has to be done in the context of the particular goals and strategies of the particular nonprofit organizations. In your book, you cite many examples of people who are very successful in business. Right. And they think, well, I, if I can do this, if right. I can invent, so for example, maybe Facebook, right. I then can use my money to improve schools in Newark, just right. as an example. Yeah, for instance. And it, and it yeah. often doesn't work out. No, that it doesn't. Way. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think particularly in Silicon Valley, there is a tendency. Uh, yeah, I don't mean to caricature too much, but but there's a tendency that goes a little bit like this: like I made my money through some breakthrough innovation, uh, and all we need is a breakthrough innovation to disrupt education or disrupt poverty. You know, as if that was um, as simple as Uber disrupting the taxi business. Not that that was simple, but it was simpler for sure. So you see mistakes uh, like. Uh, like those made in Newark, or, or I would, I would say the Gates Foundation has a similarly sort of checkered record in uh, education, where uh, the the f- initial emphasis was let's break large high schools into small high schools. That'll yield better outcomes. Nope, that didn't work. Okay, let's focus on teacher evaluation, teacher effectiveness. Tie that to pay. That didn't work. Okay, Common Core. That's what we're going to do. Uh, let's see if everyone can adopt a common curriculum, and that will lead to greater outcomes. You know, and 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 the reality is that um, these problems defy a single sort of disruptive intervention because they're so complicated and interconnected. And one way you understand that is to actually really engage the people who are closer to the ground, uh, the teachers, the parents, the kids. This is a difficult thing for uh, folks with a lot of wealth to do because they reside in a bit of a bubble. So sometimes in certain areas, like global health, um, it is a little bit more the case that we know what works and we just need to do it. Like we, If we vaccinate people against certain diseases, they won't die of those diseases. And a little bit more of a top-down approach can actually work, although 
it's not easy there either. Uh, but in an area like education, which is so complicated, uh, it's just uh, it's foolish to think that there is going to be one thing that's going to dramatically alter outcomes. Got it. So, obviously, people uh, there are a lot of good benefits to making donations. I just read an article recently about it. it actually makes you happier yeah. and reduces rates right. of depression. But some people also like tax benefits. Right. Um, but that's a little dicier now, right? Because to make the con- to be able to deduct the contribution, you have to itemize. But because yep. of the new tax law, the standard deduction is so much higher. Fewer people are are itemizing. There's, I think, some concern that people are going to donate less because of that. Is that true? Do people have that concern? Is there any evidence that that's happening yet? Uh, there is a lot of concern. Uh, we've already seen. I mean, the data is is hard to get your your arms around and. Uh, but what data is available um, in recent years shows that there's already been a decline in the percentage of households giving, uh, and that's that's due to a decline in sort of everyday uh, givers, uh, and so that's concerning to begin with. And then we have the new tax law. Now we don't have the data yet um, on sort of definitive 2018 giving levels, but some early um, studies suggest that it may have been more like flat, down in real terms, but flat, or just a bit up uh, nominally, um, as opposed to pretty healthy growth uh, previously. Um, is that because of the change in tax law? You know, it's hard to know for sure. I also think that change will take a little while to play itself out because people didn't necessarily recognize. I mean, I think for most people doing their taxes for 2018, it was like they had no idea what to expect, right? As 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 they begin to recognize, oh, gee, I, I used to itemize, but I didn't this time. You know, it may be that actually it's 2019 and 2020 that we see the effects really play out. So I think it's really worrisome, uh, and um, you know, there's a lot of critiques that one can make of the way the charitable deduction has been. Implemented, or you know, why should people at higher tax rates get more tax benefit for a contribution of hundred dollars? Lots of legitimate questions, but in general, I I do personally believe that it is a good thing uh, from a policy perspective to incent people to be charitable um, because our nonprofit sector in this country is, as we said at the outset, uh, a source of great strength, and I think we want to make sure that we're supporting it. So one strategy that tax experts are recommending is that. If the amount you give in a single year right. isn't enough to be able to result the deduction, to bunch your deduction, right. so you give two or three years worth in one year. Yeah. Now, if you don't, if you want to do that, but you don't necessarily want to give the the money to the charity in that year, one way to do that is in a donor advised fund. Exactly. And these things are becoming more and more popular. So I thought maybe we should talk a little bit about those. Great. So why don't you explain what a donor advised fund is? Yeah, I mean you did a good job, I think, just there. So so a donor advised fund could be um, established at your local community foundation, uh, or there are also national uh, uh, providers like Fidelity Charitable is the biggest Schwab Vanguard, and it it. Makes things really easy. You put ten thousand um, dollars. The minimum ranges, but it's often as low as five thousand dollars, into a donor advised fund at one of these donor advised fund providers, and then basically with a click of a button, you can direct your uh, you can direct your contributions, um, and you do get that deduction when you make the initial uh, contribution to the donor advised fund, which is technically a nonprofit uh, charitable organization, even though it may take a little while before 
the gift gets to the operating nonprofits you want to support, which is why there's been a lot of controversy surrounding donor advised funds um, and critics who suggest that you know these funds are just sort of warehousing charitable dollars that should be going to operating nonprofits. Now, it's actually it's actually kind of tricky because we don't really know what would have otherwise happened. We don't know the counterfactual. So, to the extent that donor advised funds on the higher side are replacing what would have been charitable foundations, uh, it may be that it's actually resulting in more money out the door to operating nonprofits because DAFs pay out at an average of about 20% a year, uh, whereas most foundations pay out close to the mandated minimum of 5%. To the extent that um, the rise in DAFs is replacing what would have otherwise been straight checkbook giving out to an operating nonprofit, then the critics would be right. to the extent that it is actually making giving more convenient and uh, leading people to give who wouldn't have otherwise, or to give more, well, well, then you know there's that as well. We really don't know, uh, and um, but there's a you know, and and my view is that you know from a donor perspective, a DAF can be a really convenient way uh, to do your giving, and uh, if you're looking to kind of direct it yourself, you don't need a lot of support. Then you know one of the big gift funds uh, is a, is a good. Option. If, on the other hand, you really want some support in your community, community foundations are a wonderful and I think underappreciated uh, uh, group of institutions in this country. There are about 800 of them. You know, they're in, in most communities with some degree of uh, sort of population, uh, and uh, and they have staff whose job it is to help you think through. Well, what are my goals? And given those goals, what are the nonprofits that? Uh, they know to be effective, uh, and they can help guide you uh, through that decision making, which I think is a great benefit. And and uh, I'm often surprised that uh, you know some community foundations are very well known, and 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 others I think are probably underappreciated for all of the value that they can bring to individual donors. Yeah, just a, as a, an illustration of how big they've become, Fidelity's version, Fidelity Charitable, yeah, now takes in more. Donations than any charity in the U.S. Correct, surpassing, surpassing the United, United Way. Way. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And just and so people understand the details. You put the money in, and you sort of operate like a four hundred one k because you choose right. the investments, and then you eventually decide who gets it and when they get it. Right. Now some some do put limits on, say like you have to contribute a little bit. I think Fidelity's is like you have to make a contribution every three years or something like that. So each do have their own rules, but that is part of the the. The criticism is that people put money in, and then maybe the, the charities don't see that money for a long time. Right. All, I mean, most of the major DAF providers, as far as I know, and certainly um, the bulk of the community foundations, do have policies that prevent you from having a dormant account. I, th- I think the question is like, how is that defined, and for how long can the money can the money be there, and so on. And so there are um, folks like Ray Madoff, who's a uh, professor at Boston College Law School. You know, who's been very much uh, uh, campaigning for some kind of limit on DAFs they have to spend out within 10 years, for example. Whereas the Community Foundation and National Gift Fund folks say, no, you know, what are you talking about? The payout is actually pretty high at 20 plus percent, and uh, people should have the ability to make these decisions about the lifespan of their DAFs uh, themselves. Gotcha. Um, so, what's your take on? Being asked for money on the spot, and it was, my wife was always wondering about this too. Whether it's whether it's someone who's knocking at your door, but also when you're checking out at the grocery store and they're yeah. asking you for that one dollar or something right. like that. And our question is always like, what's 
what is the benefit to the company that they're asking me to make this one dollar donation? Right. Yeah. Well, in general, I think it's bad to make decisions, you know, with a line of people waiting impatiently behind you. Right. Uh, Just in life, in general. Yeah. Just don't make decisions like that. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I think I I I encourage people to try to be um, to be thoughtful about their charitable giving to establish um, as we've been talking about goals and a budget, uh, and then not to just be responsive to whoever with a clipboard happens to uh, get you in the Whole Foods parking lot or wherever you are. And uh, and I think that. Because if you do just respond, you will look back at the end of the year, and the list of contributions you made will have no relation to what you thought your priorities were, right? So, on the other hand, I think we need to be realistic. Realistic that when your niece, you know, says, "Hey, for this school project, I'm trying to raise money about X, Y, Z," you know, you're going to give her something, right? Because you want to be a good uncle or right. a good aunt. Um, but uh, you know, I I mean, I, you know, maybe twenty percent is there for that, or the coworker who's doing the run because they lost their mom, you know, to to breast cancer or whatever, and you want to support her, you know, uh, that's great. But then try to have the eighty percent be about you know the priorities that you established at the beginning of the year, and and if they are, then you should make those decisions thoughtfully on your timetable, uh, with the help and advice that you choose. Uh, not with um, you know some college student and uh, you know I had this job at one time uh, standing on the doorstep pressuring you to give uh, and I, I was pretty good at it but I don't think that people were necessarily thinking things through. I, yeah. I had the job in college of being the one calling you up asking you to give money. Yeah. Hello, dear alumni. Right. Yes. No, I yeah. would love for you. Oh yes, you still think yeah. they always find you. Yeah. They always oh, absolutely. find you. Yeah, that was right. my job for a little right. while in college. Yeah. I was okay at it. <laughs> sure you were. <laughs> well, so let's close here with some recommended resources. Where can people go to learn more about effective philanthropy and how to evaluate the charities they're considering? Yeah. Um, well, I said this already, but I'll say it again. Your local community foundation is a great resource. Um, and so if you're if you're wanting to give in your community, uh, that's that's. The resource I would really lean on, and, and where I would where I would start. I'm so, and I'm sorry, just sorry to interrupt. When you say local community foundation, is that like a specific term? Is that I don't understand what a local community, yeah or is in, it in like, your city. Okay. So in Washington D.C., there's there's community foundation of the capital region. There's the Boston Foundation in Boston. There's uh, Chicago Community Trust, but also in more rural areas, you have the New Hampshire Community Foundation, or you know, they're they're everywhere. So okay. there's there's um, so Google your city yeah. and community foundation and see what comes. Yeah, up. Okay. and it'll pop right up. Yeah, and uh, so then um, you know there are a lot of different resources depending what your focus is. So if, for example, you're someone who is focused on um, helping poor people in developing countries, uh, and uh, you know things like um, you know disease prevention. Uh, there's a resource called GiveWell, uh, and they do a great job of rigorously analyzing the performance of a small set of organizations that work in that world. Uh, and so, you know, it, it there isn't like a one-stop shop. Uh, if you're looking for just resources on, well, how do I think about my giving? Uh, there's a relatively new website called 
uh, Giving Compass, uh, which was created by the Rakes Foundation. Jeff Rakes is a mi- former Microsoft executive, and then actually he ran the Gates Foundation for a while. And they've they've tried to compile resources from a variety of different organizations, including the one I lead, the Center for Effective Philanthropy, and a bunch of others, and put them all into one convenient place for individual donors who are looking for uh, resources. So those are a few ideas. Great. Well, this has been great. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Again, our guest has been Phil Buchanan, the founding chief executive of the Center for Effective Philanthropy and the author of the recently published book, Giving Done Right. Fundraising is hard. Ask any nonprofit or charity. Sometimes you have to go to extreme lengths to get donors to pony up. So, I have a few fun stories for you guys to figure out because we're going to put the fun back in fundraising. You want to start with an easy one? Yes, you do. Yes, we do. Let's head to the Tampa Women's Club and their 2013 Fashionalia fundraiser. Go Bucks. Tampa Bay Bucks. I'm from Tampa. I can say that. Yeah, I'm sure these ladies were really big on the Bucks team. Fun fact Bucks have a new coach and now the first NFL team in history to have two full time female coaches. Very nice. And assistant coaches. So instead of raffling off tickets for a prize, the ladies of the Tampa Women's Club poured 400 flutes of champagne. One flute would hold a real one-carat diamond worth $5,000, and the rest would contain fakes. So everyone was able to then pick their glass, and a diamond expert would come around and look at everyone's to see who got the real diamond. Where did the real diamond end up? Somebody's belly. I said it was going to be an easy one. Yes, that's right. It ended up in the large intestine of 80-year-old Miriam Tucker. As quoted in the Miami Herald, I thought I'd drink a bit of champagne so I didn't have to stick my fingers so far into the glass. We were laughing and talking when I realized I swallowed it. What a dumb thing. Bless her heart. So lucky for Miriam, she had a colonoscopy scheduled in a couple days. And so her doctor digging for gold. Her doctor was able to extract the diamond and clean it up. And sure enough, she had the real diamond. That's a pricey polyp. It is. Here's some fun irony. The Miami Herald reported that the uh, Champions for Children was the luncheon beneficiary, and their motto: "Protect our precious gems." <laughs> These are going to get harder. According to Nonprofit Quarterly, in 2012, a UK anti-domestic violence charity put out the call for donations of copies of what book so that they could burn them in a big bonfire as a fundraiser? Fahrenheit 451. (laughs) Mein Kampf? The answer is Fifty Shades of Grey. (laughs) So the director of Wareside Women in Need said that the book sends a message that domestic violence is sexy. So the charity received some backlash about burning books because fascism. So they opted instead to use the books as toilet paper. (laughs) All right. In 2005, following Hurricane Katrina, the DeLone Catholic High School in McSherrystown, PA, started a fundraiser called Stop the Bop. The school played what song over the PA before class, between periods, and during lunch on repeat in order to annoy the students into donating money to get the music to stop? She Bop by Cyndi Lauper. The song that never ends. Bro was warmer on that one. It was Hanson's Mbop. Oh, yeah, of course. I think we need to do this one at The Fool. Like, we could hide speakers in the elevators or someplace like that and make people. I think we could do it. I think we should do that in mid August when I'm on vacation. (laughs) 
All right, let's head to Kickstarter, where anyone can raise money for anything, including Zach Danger Brown of Columbus, Ohio. In 2014, he set up a Kickstarter to raise $10 to make potato salad. He ended up raising how much money? Close this without going over. 100000 Oh, I'm going to go low then. One dollar. <laughs> Fifty-five thousand. Fifty-five thousand. Yeah. So he took the extra money and threw a party called Potato Stock with local bands and celebrities. <laughs> the show was free, and all the proceeds from selling concessions went to end hunger and homelessness in Central Ohio. Oh, clever. Isn't that nice. All right. Here's my favorite one. Since 2007, Desert Bus for Hope raises money for Child's Play, a charity that donates video games and consoles to children's hospitals. They do this by marathon playing the most boring game ever created called Desert Bus. What famous entertainment duo invented this game in 1995 as a response to critics of the gaming industry? A famous duo? Yeah. Known for their pranks, I would say, also. This entertaining duo is known for their pranks. Penn and Teller? Mm Mm-hmm. You got it. Uh, Penn and Teller? Yes, you also got it, bro. <laughs> so have you heard of this, Desert Bus? It's hilarious. Okay, so the object of the game, Desert Bus, is that you are driving a bus between Las Vegas and Tucson, Arizona, which takes eight hours. As the driver, you have to keep the bus on the road. You can only go 45 miles an hour. Every now and then, the bus kind of veers off the road, so you got to keep it, keep it on the road. If you veer completely off the road, the game starts over. You can't pause the game. There are no cheats. There's nothing to see but endless desert road. <laughs> At around five hours, a bug splatters on the windshield. That's all that That's happens for five hours. On the return trip, um, night sets in. So then all you can see is like your headlights on the road. Anyway, you get one point for every trip that you make between Tucson and Las Vegas. Oh, it's so good. All right. So Desert Bus for Hope was um, the charity was created by the internet sketch comedy group Loading Ready Run, and they raised 25000 their first year. Penn and Teller found out about it, and they noted, donated money and also bought them lunch every day. And um, so the amount of time that they play, essentially what they do is they accept donations, and then however much money they raise is equivalent to the amount of time that they have to play the game. And so they've raised over $5 million in the last 10 years of doing this. Um, If you're curious, Desert Bus is available on iOS or Android if you want to play it. (laughs) Uh, And you can also watch it on YouTube. Um, There's like a, a playthrough on YouTube, which is... It's pretty awesome. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, so Penn and Teller created the game because um, as a, a response to uh, critics of gaming industry who said that games were too violent and they were making kids violent. And so they created this game to be like, well, here's what games would be like if they were like reality. It's driving a bus eight hours <laughs> through the desert. Exciting. Anyway, all right. That's, that's all I got. You're both winners. We're all winners. We're all winners. <laughs> All right, that's the show. It is edited boppingly by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. Drop us a line, send us your questions. What else do you want to do? Hey, leave us a review on iTunes. Why not? And summer is practically around the corner, which means you're all going to start vacationing. So don't forget to send us your postcards from the road. Our address is 2000 Duke Street, Alexandria, Virginia, 22314. Rick, you look like you want to say something. 
postcards from that desert road would be really great. Postcards from the desert <laughs> road, somewhere between Tucson and Las Vegas. Uh, for Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.